Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. It's been a while since I talked to startups about what it takes to succeed in the digital health or biotech space. In this episode, founders of four very different companies talk about their fundraising experiences. As critically mentioned by Fuad Al-Nur, co-founder and CEO of ThinkSono, we should stop talking about the myth that startups search for investors that can offer strategic benefits. It's true that that's important, but fundraising is still primarily about getting money to be able to start a business. The key thing, in the end, is also to find an investor that you like as a person. This will be crucial for the investor-startup relationship to survive once things get tough, Fuad said. And it does get tough. As mentioned by Kai Miller, co-founder and CEO of a digital twin company Evenbuilt, he talked to over 90 investors with very limited success at first because the solution Evenbuilt is creating is so forward-thinking. In this episode, you will hear about a mental health app that works with hospitals to give patients timely support after discharge and prevent too early readmissions, a startup improving mechanical ventilation with the help of digital twins, how can immunotherapy production be optimized according to a Swiss-based startup Limula, and a revolution in ultrasound with the CEO of a startup Tingsono that created a handheld ultrasound which is shortening the diagnostic time of deep venous thrombosis. We briefly discussed each of these solutions and also the fundraising side of creating a startup. EIT Health Catapult program has plenty to offer, but as a startup you should also consider which stage you're in when applying to get the most value. This episode is supported by EIT Health Germany. EIT Health Germany is one of the eight knowledge and innovation communities currently funded by the European Institute of Innovation and Technology, EIT. EIT Health Germany connects 150 renowned partners from the industry, research and education from Germany, Austria and Switzerland. If you're a startup working in the field of digital health or biotech and don't know EIT Health Germany yet, I would encourage you to visit eit-health.de, that's eit-health.de, where you'll find more about innovation, acceleration and education programs. One more thing. As the war in Ukraine continues, the need for medical help is increasing. If you're a medical device manufacturer or have the ability to donate medical equipment, EIT Health is facilitating the supply of medical equipment to Ukraine. EIT Health has partnered with the Polish Medical Mission, a leading humanitarian organization working with healthcare professionals on the border of Ukraine. So if you're an organization with the ability to donate and ship any of the medical equipment, please complete the form on EIT Health's website for Ukraine. Find the link in the show notes. Now let's move to today's episode. The speakers you will hear from are Luke Henry, CEO and co-founder of Limula, Kai Wieland-Miller, 
co-founder and CEO of Ebenbild, Fuad Alnur, co-founder and CEO of ThinkSono, and Hans Jurgenstein, managing director of Mentalis. Let's dive in. We were going to start with a quick introduction of four very different companies that have one thing in common, and that is that you all participated in the Catapult program by EIT Health Germany, which I look forward to hearing more about. But first, let's start with uh, a brief set of introductions. So, Fuat, you're in the startup called ThinkSono, which is disrupting the ultrasound space with an easy-to-use ultrasound solution that has currently been tested for faster discovery of deep venous thrombosis or DVT. Can you tell us a little bit more about how does your technology work? What makes it easier to use compared to regular ultrasound? So thanks very much. Yeah, that's pretty much correct. Software provides guidance to non-ultrasonographers so that they can perform a standard, what's called a standard compression ultrasound scan. So in some sense, it's basically the same as a normal ultrasound for detection of DVT, which is the gold standard today, or de facto gold standard. That's just how it's done by the radiologists. However, our technology um, analyzes the images automatically and presents data such that, for example, a nurse could perform that scan instead, which has huge implications in terms of patient improvements and clinical pathway improvements, as well as reduction in cost and waiting times. The list can go on and on why this is a, a good idea, and prior to us, no one could really do that. A quick follow-up. So usually when we've got simplifications of large technologies such as the ultrasound technology, the concern of the clinicians is that the point-of-care devices are not as accurate as the regular uh, devices. So how do you ensure the accuracy? And Well, what we do is that we do clinical trials. In fact, we're running multi-centered clinical trials to make sure that the safety and efficacy essentially of the technology is as good as normal clinical practice. But we also have backups. So it performs a compression ultrasound. A radiologist can review that data to ensure that, that the decisions are made correctly. In fact, our first version, it's a triage tool, essentially. So a radiologist will still make the final call. However, the improvement and the clinical pathway is just the same. In other words, a nurse performs a scan, the data gets sent somewhere else for a radiologist or emergency doctor. We call them a qualified clinician, someone who's experienced, can have a look and, and, and therefore make sure that the safety is paramount and it's just the same as normal clinical practice. And that's what we're doing in our studies. That's the data we're starting to get. One uh, last question for you as a part of the, the introduction. When patients get referred to an ultrasound for the reason of uh, DVT, there's a certain protocol that doctors uh, need to follow. So the patient would get referred, would go to a professional uh, sonographer to do that test. How are you addressing the fact that you you are basically disrupting the whole workflow of what happens when the patient is diagnosed uh, with the DVT. The key thing is we're not disrupting the workflow. We're just shortening it. So same workflow. In subs, again, so patient walks in, they've got suspected DVT. They have to do a blood test. They have to do a risk assessment. They have to do ultrasound. Um, it's just usually that takes maybe 6 to 24 hours perhaps to get through. In our case, same workflow just takes 15, 20 minutes. A radiologist only needs to spend one minute reviewing the data as opposed to 40 minutes scanning the patient. 
You can also have, the, have it done at home so the patient doesn't have to go to the hospital in the first place. All of those mean that everything improves, although the workflow stays the same. And that's actually quite important for us, is that there is a common misconception about you know, needing to, quote, disrupt. Um, what you really want to do is, if the process isn't broken, it's just inefficient. You just want to improve the efficiency of the process. You don't necessarily want to change it. And that's basically what we do. Kai, you're the CEO of Eben uh, Built, which works in the space of digital sw- twins. More specifically, your focus is on digital twins of the lungs to improve the treatment of patients with ARDS. Basically, during the pandemic, we heard a lot about uh, ventilators. Everybody knows uh, that they're used to help with the air pathways. And I wonder you know, what exactly does Eben Build do and what kind of data do you need to build digital twins? Basically, the fundamental problem in mechanical ventilation is that you cannot see the adverse effects of mechanical ventilation right away. It only manifests like days later and that doesn't give you any chance to react as a physician to something that was setting-wise a bit off in the beginning because you simply have no chance of looking into the lung and assessing whether the ventilation itself and the ventilation parameters that are actually individualized and personalized enough to fit um, the patient's needs. And that's where we come in. Uh, We use machine learning algorithms and what's called physics-based simulation technology in order to build, so to speak, a digital counterpart of the patient's lung. And the lung is constructed from, from imaging, such as computer tomography images, that helps us to assess uh, the pathology and the level of pathology in the lung. And from that image analysis, we build this physics-based simulation model, then, which then mimics the behavior of the actual patient's lung under ventilation What do we draw from this? We draw from this mechanical quantities, for example, that help physicians make kind of better choices in the respect that the ventilation becomes more protective, meaning that it's less harmful for the individual patient. And kind of this opening of the black box of the lung, that's what we try to achieve and that's what we're working on. So the primary user are physicians, not nurses taking care of patients on ventilation. The question uh, must be answered more in a differentiated manner because it depends on where you uh, would sell and, and provide the product. In Germany, it should be. There are other healthcare systems where nurses are also allowed to make changes in the ventilator settings. But in Germany, as our kind of first market to get into the U, it is basically and legally speaking the task of a physician to set up the ventilator. To elaborate a little bit more on the digital twins in general and the digital twin that you're building, can you uh, talk a little bit about how do you see the current state of digital twins in healthcare and when talking about the digital twin uh, for lungs that you're creating, how many images do you need? What's the quantity of the data that you need to be able to build uh, a digital twin for a specific patient? If I try to imagine a patient coming uh, in the hospital, does he in an ideal scenario first have to go through massive scanning so you actually get the data? How does it work so you've raised an interesting question the the we don't force anyone to undergo additional imaging so it is a patient cohort that needs to be in needs to get imaged anyways so that we don't force additional imaging or strain through or stress through for example a radiation on them so there's existing images that we use and 
in your question, how many images do we need? We need one. One of the patient in order to beat a fully personalized digital twin of that patient. Some additional data from a ventilator, for example, but that's it. And uh, maybe with respect to the second question, in my mind, it's, it's a rapidly evolving field, the field of digital twins applied in you know, many different fields of healthcare or increasingly. The, what we mostly see is digital twins on the device side. And the big step is to get on the physiological or the organ side. And that's a large challenge. And we think we've managed to do that for the lung. And there are other companies despite only a few that can do similar things. I'm thinking, for example, of heart flow in the U.S., uh, who are building speak digital twins of uh, the vasculature around the heart, and they are pretty successful with it. Luke, uh, you're the CEO of Limula, which is a biotech company trying to simplify the CAR T cell therapy, which can have tremendous effects on patients that uh, respond to that treatment. The problem is that uh, these therapies are slow and expensive to produce because they're personalized for each patient. Um, they're made from the patient's own immune cells um, of each patient and modified to target killing of the tumor that a patient has. So basically, if I try to simplify what you're doing, I would say that you're trying to speed up the production processes and basically open the doors for greater accessibility. So the, this would be where I would ask you to maybe elaborate a little bit further on what exactly is the solution that you are developing. So technically, we don't really speed up the process basically because biology is what biology is. Cells need time to divide. So as long as you need to wait for having more cells from a small cell number, you need some patience. What we're trying to do is to encapsulate a complex process into a single device. So at the moment, these cell therapies, as you said, they're made from the patient cells. Uh, these cells are usually shipped to a centralized facility. Over there, they go through multiple rounds of processing. And so it's a lot of manual labor transferring the cells from a device to another device to a bioreactor to eventually another device and so on. So what we're trying to do is to prove that the invention we made, which is a design invention really, it's a technology by design, can encapsulate all these steps and keep the cells in the same container across the whole process. And that means not necessarily faster, but certainly uh, less hands-on time, so less people involved in the process, less mistakes, uh, less potential for contamination, for example, but also less space, because instead of having five or six devices lined up, often in a, in a high-grade uh, clean room, we can actually lower restrictions on the quality of air, and we can also lower the space needed for a single batch. So what we're hoping is really that by bringing everything in a, in a single device, then uh, you can not only remove some of the manual steps, but also save a lot of space, facility space that is very expensive. Jürgen, you're in the uh, mental health space, so focusing on improving mental health after discharge from a hospital. In the last two years, we've talked a lot about the general well-being of the population, the rising challenges with mental health, but that's not your focus, right? You're really working with hospitals to make uh, follow-up care more optimal and to avoid readmission. Can you tell me a bit uh, more about how you identified uh, this uh, problem and how far are you currently with the development? 
Yes, of course. Uh, we are a university spin-off and we conducted several studies on different indications and different points of the patient journey. And while doing that, we were approached by our partners, that is hospitals and health insurers, because there's a huge gap in aftercare. So they asked us, could you address this problem? And we did it. We quite successfully did it with several studies. And now we have programs uh, in place for depression, for borderline personality disorder, for eating disorders, for effect regulation and for alcohol addiction. And can you uh, talk a little bit more about the whole process? How does it look like? How many physicians need to be involved? Do you have clinical specialists on your end? Our partners tell us the key benefit uh, of our solution is our process innovation because we integrate into the hospitals. So the patient is inscribed while still in hospital. He gets the app in hospital. He gets his first appointment for his time after hospital when he's still in hospital and he can start using the app right away. After he leaves off hospital and returns to this, his domestic setting, we take care and we have a, a psychological telecoach who supports uh, the patient and the patient to work uh, himself within the app. And how many hospitals are you currently working with? We started recruiting hospitals for a market approach. So we worked with 24 or 25, uh, 25 hospitals during our studies. And we started working hospitals with hospitals uh, in the market approach half a year ago. And right now uh, we have 11 hospitals uh, that are offering uh, our solution and uh, 40 more that are uh, lining up to do so. None of the uh, solutions that all of you are uh, building is basically sold directly to end users. So I want to dive into a little bit more. Uh, how do you get the buy-in uh, from the end users that you would like to see would use your solution in the end? Jürgen, you already uh, explained a little bit more about how you work with the hospitals, <coughs> but uh, if we try to move to others as well, who wants to start? Luke, do you by any chance uh, want to elaborate Elaborate a little bit more about who the stakeholders are in your processes and who do you actually need to convince about the usability of your solution. Yeah, no, absolutely. So at, at the moment, uh, what we realize by talking to a lot of people in this CGT field is that our end user is probably going to be CDMOs and small to large pharma companies that already have their own manufacturing process, their own manufacturing facilities because you need a very strict uh, regulated environment to produce these therapies. So uh, not anybody can just uh, set it up and, and uh, use it in any location. We're trying to address a manufacturing problem. So we're trying to avoid getting too much inputs from researchers because usually researchers have constraints that are very different from the CMC people down the line. And so uh, getting inputs from researchers would mean that we would develop a tool that is good for preclinical, but doesn't necessarily uh, scale to manufacturing later on. So it's really important for us that we talk to CMC people, quality people, that would be uh, eventually the end users. And so at the moment, we have a lot of traction in the field of CAR-T, but also other cell processing steps in other cell types, mostly from manufacturing people that see the value of our solution. What about you, Kai? How do you look for potential partners that would then see the benefit for the end users? Actually, so that's <laughs> we are trying to play something like a stakeholder domino where the first people we address are key opinion leaders in the field of uh, mechanical ventilation and critical care. The, the, on, on the lucky side, we do have quite some reputation through the scientific work we've done in the past 15 years. 
so that our access to our end users, which are physicians eager to do kind of preclinical studies with us, and that is what we use to gradually validate the individual modules of our product. That's our current state that we're in. Of course, the user in this case doesn't pay the product, as you just mentioned, and initially we believe that we will sell directly to hospitals where we've already talked to purchasing departments and, and controlling in order to understand what the cost mechanics there are because the economic benefit that we offer aside from the medical benefit uh, would be to reduce ventilation time which reduces cost tremendously per patient and um, that is our way in to to get the buy-in of the hospitals long term I would hope because there's currently no reimbursement in place for something like our product, because there's nothing like that what we do that. After a validation and evidence phase, that we can enter the reimbursement catalogs in different healthcare systems. And that would be our way to wiggle ourselves through the, the, the stakeholder labyrinth. Yeah. What about you, Fuad? How do, does ThinkSono enter the, the hospital or the, the healthcare space? Also, if you are looking at nurses to be the ones uh, using the system, I'm just wondering how do you approach that? So the first thing we do is run studies and pilots and we form partnerships. And through that, we, you know, with a successful, we can turn that hospital into a customer. You are all working in quite a different fields of biotech and digital health. So one might think you're after the same investors because you're in the healthcare space. But I wonder, because you're addressing such diverse challenges, how do your approaches for fundraising differ? I'll be quick. No, so I, I think cell therapy is a very niche you know, topic. It requires really specific expertise that a lot of therapeutic VCs don't have because it's so recent that very few people have invested in CGT. So we're really trying to focus on, on investors that have deep know-how in this field and so that restricts us to a very small list but that we don't overlap with, with a lot of other people in healthcare because of that. Is, is your focus more on, on the pharma companies then and pharma accelerators and programs like that? It's, it's been very hard to see if interest would come from pharma investors or from hardware investors. And I think that's why we focus on CGT investors, because they understand that we are at the middle point between the two and you can't put us in a box very easily. I guess I have a different perspective than Luke. I think we're all chasing the same. Investors are at the very end. If you're going to be a $10 billion company or more, they're going to want to invest in you, whether or not you're doing cell therapy or devices or whatever. How that being said, Luke has a very good point about expertise. Um, many investors don't have the expertise in healthcare or medical devices or therapeutics in general. They just stay away from that, and obviously we wouldn't touch them. But I guess I don't get the question, what's the problem even if our investors overlap? I'm not quite seeing the, the issue. So it's just about when you're looking for investors, it's not just looking for money. It's looking for strategic partners that will be able to help you. You basically answered the question there might sometimes be an overlap on investors that would be interested in different fields or would have expertise in different fields. So, but that was basically what I was uh, wondering. Are you really looking at uh, niche investors and experts or is broad uh, focus also good enough for you? And I think Luke um, and you both illustrated well that it can really differ based on the case. Yeah, um, there's also a point. 
it's really mainly about money. The number of investors that have some special, amazing look from the investor side. What's their pitch? Their pitch is we can help. Everyone has money, and we can help you because we have some other special sort of access or whatever. And that's their pitch. That's their branding, right? Now it doesn't mean it's true. It's just branding. And there was even a study a while ago, I think, where they were comparing like what entrepreneurs really thought when investors were helpful and not non-money helpful. And I think this is maybe slightly controversial, but I think it's a bit of a myth. In most cases, look, I'm not going to say Sequoia is as good as a tier four VC. It's obviously going to be different. There are investors who have some serious access, right? That's very true. But generally speaking, when you're trying to raise money, unless you are Sequoia and like real serious top tier, you know, one VC, the 90th percentile, for most entrepreneurs just need the money, and most investors can't really help the entrepreneurs more than just giving them the money. And I think there's a lot of BS or playing around and pretending that there is anything otherwise. And really, what the investment is going to be based on is the partner. They're all people at the end of the day. I love my investors. They supported my company, but I like them as people. I did. I didn't take their money because of they have some sheer like special access to hospitals. I took their money because I thought they're really good. They're very supportive, like emotionally. Let's say. They're very supportive to say, "Hey, when things go bad, we can support you a bit more." But it's not really so much that they have some other unique like expertise. Sorry, I'm ranting now, but I'm just—I I guess it's just so much talk about supporting entrepreneurs outside the money. But when the company's doing really badly and money's really on the line, all of that goes out the window, and everyone like suddenly the money really plays such a big role. So. I guess we just have to be careful at replaying this myth constantly about how much money is irrelevant and all the other things are relevant. Sorry, guys, I apologize. I have very controversial views here, so I'll accept that. No, nothing controversial. Just uh, very, I guess, honest, and that's what we're here for. So, Kai, what's your perspective? Because on the one hand, it seems that you might be uh, very interesting for maybe uh, medical device companies that are working in the ventilation space. At the same time, digital twins is a huge buzzword at the moment. So, I'm sure that you're attracting um, a lot of interest from other investors as well. How do you see the whole VC landscape and fundraising from the startup perspective? It's I don't know if I have a controversial view here, but I certainly can state that our case is difficult <laughs> because we sit somewhere in between life sciences investments where it is accepted that there might never be any kind of revenue at the end and the, the goal is to sell it to some larger company. On the other hand, we provide software-only products, which means that people expect you to have revenues right away. And it's really difficult to find people with the right expertise to judge whether this is an interesting case or not, especially right now in Germany, I think. I guess it's... Uh, it, it is gonna basically it's a topic it's going to change i think but it's we had a very hard time over the past like two years to find an investor actually we succeeded in the end i think but the overall topic and the setting of what we try to do is not the easiest one i would say the Investors that are broadly known to the public have shown us the cold shoulder, right? Because it's not just something where you can tell a story where you make money right away and you'll be profitable within the first two or three years, even if it's just the story and reality might look different afterwards. That is not something that we can tell. We 
got out there and told the story that we believe in, which was that we will make a difference in critical care through technology that is far beyond the state of the art. And we, it took us a long time to find people that actually saw that it is far beyond the state of the art. And it was not just talk. And so my take on VCs of, I don't know, about the 90 VCs I talked to where everyone didn't like us, basically, is not... I guess we were in a niche that wasn't very attractive. Or we told the wrong story, but we'll see. <laughs> I thought I was honest in this call and then I actually beat me. <laughs> so it's impressive. Yeah. Like your product. So I, I think I, I will message me after. I have probably a bunch of VCs that invest in something like your stuff. This discussion is going in, in very interesting directions. But to stick a little bit more with the, the comments on fundraising, Jürgen, um, because you're working in mental health space, your solution is in a way the easiest to understand especially in the last two years, the awareness has been raised about the need to improve mental health. In several countries, there's a huge issue with access to mental health professionals, either if you don't have a diagnosis yet or even if you already do. What did you observe in terms of how the investors were uh, reacting to your pitches because you're working in the mental health space and there's predictions about how this space is going to grow and everybody's investing in it? Yes, let's put it like this. There is many expectation about the mental health market, but there's also many companies uh, in this market. And investors need to understand what these companies do and each company does because they have specific focuses. As, as to us, we are not a DIGA like you have in Germany. We will not be with our aftercare program. And our approach is a very specific, where we integrate uh, hospitals and, and health insurers and the patients. So we don't want to be put in the Oh, just another mental health app draw, because that's not the case. So in our experience, it was there's no solution that fits all. So there's no advice I can give to anyone who goes for a fundraising, but to have a, a long stamina. However, I would say the key point is get yourself out there. And you need to be seen because if no one knows you, nobody will find you. However, we already knew our investors before we got out there uh, and we were in contact with uh, them for two years before they invested. So probably in our case, the, the case was to build a trust and relationship with the investor. And that worked quite fine for us. But I think it's highly individual. And I think fundraising is probably one of the hardest things for a startup to do out there. Next to all the stuff you have to do as a startup as well. Yeah, that's, I guess, where the acceleration and the innovation programs uh, can come in. But before we go into that, Fuad, did you have a, a, a comment that you wanted to add to that? I feel like I speak too much, so I'll let you read this because I could just mm -hmm. ramble. So. No, go ahead, go ahead. That's You're why we're boss. here. If you guys have any comments, just feel free to share them. So don't hold yourself back. That's good. Yeah, no, I agree with uh, you. And basically, you need to build that trust. It's all about network and trust. Fundraising is the hardest thing a startup can do. Very hard, I agree, it's definitely hard. But I think in many cases, it's the easiest thing to do because depending on, it depends what the problems you're going to solve, right? Ironically, as hard as fundraising is for me, I'm less concerned about fundraising, at least in our context, than I'm concerned about the problem we're trying to solve. If you take a uh, Let's take an extreme cliche example of Elon Musk trying to build an interplanetary species. The money is a problem for him, obviously, but like 
building an interplanetary series species is itself quite a hard problem. Um, and I think, for example, what, what Luke is doing, as Kai is doing, really, that's actually really tough. And, and it's only tough to find investors in the sense that you just have to find the right one, right? Once you have the, the correct network and the right investors, it's not that hard. It just, it's, it's like hard with, with respect to like your network and stuff. It's not hard once you're in the right group of people. Then it's very easy, actually, because people, investors at the end of the day, want to fund brilliant founders. And I think people on this call are very good. So I think if it is very difficult, then something has to change and we have to find the right, right network. I used to joke when I was part of, uh, I was part of an accelerator, actually. We're talking about accelerators next. So I was quite part of the Entrepreneur First Accelerator. And at the very beginning, I used to make this joke to my friend in the worst time in the accelerator. And we were all burnt out and we were working like 20 hour, 20, no, um, 12 hour days, 16 hour days. And I used to say, oh, this is very easy. And he used to tell me, how is it easy? We haven't slept. <laughs> we're not eating properly. And I said, it's all relative, really. It's all in our heads. Like, we're not in the Taliban. We're not in Afghanistan today. So it's, it's really not that hard. It's self-imposed, like, <laughs> difficulty. So in the grand scheme of things, it's actually not that difficult. I guess it's always about uh, perspective. And if you compare yourself to others, you can always uh, find people that are worse off and people that are better off. I think we opened up a, a really good topic, and that is the role of accelerators and uh, incubation processes, what they offer. And you are all the finalists of the EIT Held Germany Catapult program. Last year in June, you were uh, chosen among the 42 startups, so quite a competition. How did you, based on everything that you already said, but how did you come across the EIT Health programs? Why did you apply for Catapult? What was the benefits that convinced you? Because startups are always tight on time. So even with uh, these kinds of programs, you have to be very careful what you choose. Maybe, Luke, you can start. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The offering out there is enormous. Uh, a lot of people have no idea what they're doing. Some are extremely useful. And uh, I would definitely put the uh, EIT Health Catapult one in the useful basket because the visibility we got out of the competition was really good. And I think visibility is really key. There's one stage in the startup, you still uh, need the validation, you're still building credibility. And it's only through feedback and a lot of interactions with uh, experts that you can actually come up with something that is more focused than the initial idea. And uh, the networking, the, the experts that we get exposed to was really useful in the IT Health Catapult. The mentor we got during the competition, we actually still work with him. He's become the godfather to our company. Not a board member exactly, but uh, really someone we can go to He's been opening his address book to us, introducing us to everybody he knows. By the time he was convinced that we had something uh, useful, something special, he was very generous with his time and also his contacts. And this is priceless. I think there's a point where you need to move away from looking for visibility and actually looking for customers, which, is, which can be very different. But at that one initial stage of the startup, Catapult was very useful. I wouldn't do it again, though. At this stage, I think my company, uh, my team doesn't need this anymore. But at this critical point in time, it was one of the best exposure we had. We did Mass Challenge Accelerator here in Switzerland as well. Very useful because, again, in the intro days, you get exposed to, I don't know, 50, 60 different people. You get a 10 minutes uh, kind of speed dating meeting with them. 
and then you weed out those that have nothing to do with your niche, uh, select maybe another five and uh, work with these on specific topics. This exposure to a lot of talent, a lot of people generous with their time was, uh, was really useful. Jürgen, what was uh, your experience? What did you find was most beneficial to use? It's basically the same that looks at. It's getting your name out there, uh, getting visibility through the program, And it uh, was just the right time for us at this uh, time when we did it. We were told about the program about from Medical Valley. We have already participated in other programs to this time. And I can also say that EIT was very helpful. And also, we still work with one of the coaches of the EIT up to this date. So it's helped us quite so much to gain, especially international visibility. What about you, Kai? And especially you were talking about positioning before and wondering if you are doing the right presentation towards the investors. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. And what have you learned about pitching through, throughout this program? Absolutely. Uh, so the, the initial idea to participate in the IT Health Catapult came through actually a newsletter by the Biotech Cluster Munich. And we found the proposal to be interesting and I applied especially to sharpen the message, to, to understand who to talk to actually, because the reason we talked to so many that were, it was in hindsight very obvious that it wasn't a fit was because we were unexperienced and didn't know anything about the, the landscape so to speak and even if there's digital health like uh, written on their website it's you know there's nuances of digital health and that we were so much not aware of and uh, so to understand through coaching actually and through these one-on-one -on -one sessions with uh, EIT health experts we just understood better who to focus on how to put the emphasis on, on you know, what we want to do on the one side because it's of no use to kind of change your, kind of your vision or your message too much because if you really want to do this, you need to find the right person or the right institution to do it with. And many of the instruments that we have hence used were also like due to the input of EIT health experts. FUAT, uh, ThinkSono was founded already in 2016, so you are the oldest uh, startup in this group. So I'm especially interested in how did you assess the Catapult program and why did you apply then? I think we are probably a little bit too old for the accelerator, so my experience has been slightly different than this, but that's fair enough. It, it is perhaps a stage issue more than anything to do with the accelerator because we've been through a, a few of them already. To this stage, to be fair, it's not finished yet. So I can't even really make a good assessment because maybe later on there are other things that come out of it. At this stage, we are probably a little bit too old and too experienced to require the support of EIC. But I, I will caveat that seriously by saying it's not finished. And so therefore, when it's done, I can give you a better answer than There is um, a 210,000 euros worth investment prize fund that you're all going to compete for uh, in May. So let's not forget about that. But just before we wrap up uh, this discussion, you're in different stages. We uh, heard your perspective. So if I ask you differently, who would you recommend the Catapult program to? What would your response be? Luke, do you perhaps want to start? I think I would highly recommend startups to start with a local accelerator program because then they get exposed to all the problems that you will be facing as a company. 
but the legal, the hiring, the pitching, the investment and so on. I think Catapult was most useful because we were already educated on these topics, but needed to sharpen our message, our understanding. So I would say take the time to get acquainted with the terminology, work on your technology, understand what the value can bring and then go out and do the catapult so that you can sharpen all of these points one of the other, leading to some kind of maturity that you can then save and go for real investors, real customers with all this uh, baggage in, in hand. For us, it was quite, I think, a month after our seed round when the uh, program started, and it fit quite well at this point. I think, like Luke said, if it would have started a year earlier, we would have been too early for the ERT Health Catapult. And at the moment, if we would apply for this batch, uh, we would be too late because it felt like the, a good time where we joined there. So basically, my advice would be for a company, if you're around seed phase, probably you could profit from uh, ERT Health Catapult quite some, some things. Thank you. Um, Kai? Let's see. How, how do I put this? Um, we were at a point where we had a second idea, actually, on how to apply the technology, slightly tune the value proposition, and just test out another field of business. And for that purpose, EIT Health Catapult turned out to be really useful because the super mentor we were lucky to be able to choose was very supportive and, and knowledgeable with respect to the field that we were interested in. And so I don't know if it, the stage for the, the pitch that I've delivered in the semifinals, I think concerning that case, we didn't learn too much new things because it was already developed over a period of two years, especially in other accelerators as well. Just to spice up the story, have another proposition to make and, and a very interesting one. And in order to test those hypotheses with very experienced and knowledgeable people, that was tremendously helpful. So yes, for the new idea, it was terrific. And right on spot, like on, like right on time for us, definitely. Fuad, do you also want to finish off these discussions with what you would say? Who would you recommend the program to, based on your experiences? Yeah, I think you're getting about that. Probably seed stage a year, maybe into their company. Maybe those would probably benefit a bunch from the EIT accelerator. If you're a slightly later stage company perhaps you're not going to get as much. As again, caveating that I don't know what's going to happen after, so maybe I'll change this answer to maybe everyone should, should do it. But yeah, perhaps the later stage ones should maybe not enter. And also give space to the younger ones. There's a matter of also being aware that you're taking up resources, right? So if, if a younger accelerator uh, startup perhaps requires it a bit more, then yes, you, you should, you should uh, get, leave some space. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you haven't yet, Please subscribe to the show to be notified about new episodes automatically. And again. As the war in Ukraine continues, the need for medical help is increasing. If you're a medical device manufacturer or have the ability to donate medical equipment, EIT Health is facilitating the supply of medical equipment to Ukraine. EIT Health has partnered with the Polish Medical Mission, a leading humanitarian organization working with healthcare professionals on the border of Ukraine. So if you're an organization with the ability to donate and ship any of the medical equipment, 
please complete the form on EIT Health's website for Ukraine. Find the link in the show notes.